Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So guys, if I seem to be a little bit out of breath, you'll forgive me because I've just been rushing in from breaking news. We've had to delay recording of the podcast by a full hour. And boy, are your arms tired. <laughs> were you My literally running like inside your house no i was actually it was i i work in one room in the house so i don't have to run too many places it's not really as dramatic as it seems in the i movie. imagine shane with like a fedora that says news on a card and then he like <laughs> runs into the room yell stop the presses <laughs> this is breaking, i got a this scoop. is shane breaking news on the guy about which shane previously broke news it's like Shane Meta News. Yeah, I like that. It's very postmodern. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the summer is definitely over edition. I am Shane Harris, dogged news reporter. With tired arms. With tired arms from flapping. <laughs> summer is definitely over. This turned out to be kind of a banger of a news day, you guys. It's just a little... Whew. You had Labor Day to relax. Hope everyone got some time off. But, you know, we're in the thick of it now. Somebody tweeted at us that we were definitely going to need the, the scotch pods to get through today's <laughs> <Kine's> news. <laughs> and I thought that was uh, uh, right on. I think we need to move to just intravenous administration. I like at it. This point. It's only Wednesday, though. <laughs> I heard that might work as a disinfectant. <laughs> will certainly make you happy. Uh, I am here in the remote jungle studio with my good friends, Ben Wittes, Susan Hennessy, and our friend Margaret Taylor from Lawfare. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. It's uh, it's nice to virtually see everybody. I hope everyone uh, listening had a nice long weekend. It was certainly beautiful in Washington, so hopefully you got a chance to be outside a bit for that. Uh, but let us commence with today's events on the podcast this week. Multiple news organizations report that President Trump has disparaged combat veterans, calling them losers and suckers. A senior Homeland Security official says he was told to stand down on the threat of Russian election interference. That's why my arms are tired today. And the legal battle continues over whether a former White House counsel must testify before Congress. Let us start with these new allegations that first surfaced in a lengthy piece by Jeffrey Goldberg at The Atlantic uh, that Trump has on numerous occasions disparage people who have served in war or who have died in war, uh, calling them losers, calling them suckers for signing up in the first place, particularly uh, for the Vietnam War or being drafted into it. And of course, famously, the president got a draft deferment because of bone spurs in his feet. Uh, and Goldberg goes on to really lay out a lot of these instances in which the president had these disparaging remarks and also links his refusal to attend uh, memorial services in Europe at cemeteries in Europe that are considered extremely uh, you know, hallowed ground by multiple military services to this desire to basically, from I think from the reporting, it's fair to say, not salute, not pay tribute to their sacrifice and sort of, you know, complaining that his hair was going to get wet in the rain. 
Susan, let me start with you. And just broadly speaking, you know, it's not surprising, I guess, some of the things in this story. We, you know, we we famously remember Donald Trump in the campaign saying John McCain was a loser because he was shot down and got captured. Why is it getting so much traction? And we should note multiple news organizations have confirmed several elements of the Atlantic piece. Why are people so enraged now to be hearing uh, these remarks attributed to the commander in chief? Yeah, I mean, look, it is an objectively shocking story, um, but I think you're right. It's a little bit of a head scratcher as to why this and not the other objectively shocking stories um, has sort of broken through. I, I think there are a few reasons for that. One is uh, having the cumulative presentation and having somebody, uh, you know, especially sort of a journalist with the stature of Jeffrey Goldberg, uh, you know, sort of take a moment to kind of review the score and sort of situate Trump's comments, his remarks, what he's done, you know, sort of in one place and, and sort of in the context of uh, of his presidency. It, it does have sort of a, a just more of a punch to it. Um, that said, in terms of substance, you know, the idea that Trump has, you know, insults members of the military, doesn't understand why people would serve. Um, the details here are, are a little gross or a little grosser than we've seen presented in the past. That said, like, this is nothing compared to the Russian bounty story, right? There, there are 50 stories that show a far more egregious uh, lack of care and concern for the lives and experience of the U.S. military. Um, and, you know, so I, I do think it's interesting to sort of wonder why is this being picked up sort of in the news cycle? I, I think one, one answer for that is that because Fox News confirmed it, um, Jennifer Griffin, who is a, a you know well-respected national security reporter who works at Fox News, um, she, along with the AP, the Washington Post, the New York Times, uh, you know, lots of other places, um, did confirm this story, and so and, and that Trump had in fact made the statements that Goldberg was reporting, um, and so it gave a little bit of a sort of a peek behind the curtain at frankly the propaganda machine that is the Fox News media ecosystem. Um, we saw Fox News pundits calling the reporting of a Fox News journalist uh, saying it was a hoax, attempting to discredit her. Um, we saw sort of all for the entire morning as this uh, story sort of blew up, Fox not having, not hosting that correspondent on its own shows, not having her do her reporting and instead having a different journalist, John Roberts, I believe, uh, sort of giving, uh, you know, coming on to report just the president's denials of it, you know, and 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 that was a it's it's a stark presentation um, of what we already knew. It's a stark confirmation of what we already knew about uh, sort of Fox and that information ecosystem about who Donald Trump is um, and who he has always been. And and a little bit I'm struck by um, you know the story that's uh, getting generating headlines today uh, is this new reporting from Bob Woodward from his new forthcoming book on Donald Trump, uh, in which Donald Trump admits on tape that Woodward has not released to the public. Um, that he always knew that the coronavirus pandemic was a serious threat and that he actively was downplaying it because he didn't want there to be a panic. Again, like 
any rational, reasonable observer of the record um, would already understand that that was true, right? It's it's plainly true from Trump's prior statements, from the state of the evidence in the world, from sort of his history in office and his history before he was in office, um, and just common sense and logic. And yet, seeing it in black and white, having that confirmation, um, having more and more people feel compelled to go on the record uh, and sort of you know tell their stories, although uh, you know a, a number of individuals who clearly were part of the sourcing of at least the Atlantic story uh, did not do so on the record, um, uh, but instead anonymously. You know, it, it's just kind of the piece by piece, pebble by pebble, um, making the the case the overwhelming, undeniable case that that Donald Trump is fundamentally not fit to be the commander in chief, and he is fundamentally unfit to be president. Margaret, you're kind of the resident Congress watcher in this group. I mean, kind of building off what Susan said, that it is a bit of a head scratcher as to why this is getting attention. At the same time, it doesn't feel like it really moves the needle at all, you know, politically and everyone is sort of in their camps. I've long maintained that, you know, it would not be until Republicans in Congress in a sustained way denounced the president for his statements and tried to rein him in that you would actually see anything change. And we're not really seeing much at all, it seems to me, from reaction from Congress over this. I mean, I guess we probably shouldn't expect to, but I'm curious what you think of the kind of muted reaction that this and and other things tend to get from, you know, the Republican caucus. I mean, I suppose from an objective perspective, it's not that surprising. Senate Republicans, Republicans in the House have shown themselves over and over again to really tend towards standing by the president on these types of things. In this instance, I mean, it's so gross and egregious. They're they're more just kind of like staying silent as opposed to actively coming out um, and supporting the president's comments. But it is telling that that they're silent. And I, I actually... I have a slightly different take on this from Susan about why this has gained traction. I think it has to do more with, you know, uh, we all know the way this country treats its military, its veterans, how we think about them, how we feel about them. They are in the communities all around the country and in particular in, in red states, right? So they are really a deep part of all of the communities in the country in a way that, um, you know, I think members of the intelligence community, people that live in Washington and what they do and, and you know, the things that Trump is in them, it just resonates differently. I think the reason that this got a little more play is because it could have the potential on the margins to diminish military support for um, the president in terms of voting. Um, and I think the president probably senses that. And that's why he's been sort of so upset about uh, the reporting. Um, and it has there's been some reporting about him, you know, just really being exercised about this whole thing. I guess I have to say, I am a little bit surprised that Republicans in Congress on the Hill haven't rushed a little bit more to say something um, sort of in the defense of troops because those troops and their families live in their districts. Um, so I guess, you know, in the end for me, it, it points to the, the really remarkable sort of control that, that this president has over Republicans in Congress. They are just not willing to come out uh, and say something against him, even even in the face of uh, substantiating reporting of really kind of grotesque statements by the president. 
Ben, what are your thoughts on, on I guess, maybe talk about the, the traction that it's gaining, but do you detect something you know, more significant, I guess, in the, not maybe the, the quality of what Trump has said here, but I wonder about the quantity. I mean, before we sort of had the example of what he said about McCain during the campaign that shocked everyone, I think made a lot of people think that this would be the off-ramp for, for GOP mainstays to kind of condemn him and, and to back away from him. But this looks like something that's just habitual over the over many, many instances uh, throughout his presidency. And, and if accurately reported, sort of, you know, I guess begs the question of, you know, are you faking it when you pretend to respect the military? So, yeah, I have to say I find this controversy bewildering. I'm delighted that it seems to be having the effect that it is and that it doesn't seem to be fading from the news. And it certainly is as offensive as can be. On the other hand, it isn't, as you all point out, different in kind from things the president has said before, whether about McCain or about the Khan family. It isn't more offensive than things he's said about Muslims and Muslim Americans, about shithole countries, about uh, Mexican-Americans, Mexican-American federal judges. I, I mean, you know, I understand that we have and should have special sensitivity about people who've given their lives for our country. And I certainly share that sensitivity. On the other hand, I'm not really sure why we should be more sort of offended on behalf of the sensibilities of dead World War I soldiers than we are of living children separated from their families. And so I find myself a little bit perplexed by uh, the fact that we have tolerated as a society all of the things that we have tolerated from Donald Trump and now find ourselves in this position where I, where this is a line that he cannot have crossed. And so either we must denounce him uh, for crossing the line or we must shield our eyes and pretend in the face of no reason in the world to disbelieve Jeffrey Goldberg uh, that like he almost certainly didn't say it, and it is just the outrageous use of anonymous sources by The Atlantic as corroborated by multiple other news organizations, uh, and we have to sort of pretend that he didn't say it. I, I find it a little bit peculiar, to be honest. Uh, that said, uh, I'm in the kind of whatever-it-takes department, and if there are people for whom this is what pushes them over the line. I confess I don't understand it, and I I don't think I ever will, but I am for whatever pushes ever any individual over the line. I, I think that is, an, you know, those are important moments for the individuals in question. I mean, I think there is one sort of uh, especially absurd wrinkle related to the sourcing here, and that's that clearly um, John Kelly, former uh, former White House chief of staff, former secretary of Homeland Security, um, is part of the sourcing, right? This is um, uh, this story is recounting private conversations that only John Kelly had with Donald Trump. Um, reportedly, John Kelly, who is, of course, in a position to confirm a lot of this on the record, thus removing doubt for any individuals who are inclined to believe John 
John Kelly uh, uh, and not the existing record. And yet apparently and reportedly, um, John Kelly doesn't want to do that because he thinks it would be improper for a retired four-star general to do so. That is absurd. We can have a reasonable conversation about the appropriateness of uh, retired military officers engaging in politics. The idea that John Kelly would accept a cabinet position, a, a highly political role, become the White House chief of staff, a highly political role. And then when it's time to actually confirm facts on the record, um, attempts to sort of uh, wrap himself in this, oh, shucks, you know, it's uh, it would be inappropriate and improper of me, uh, you know, to, to violate this tradition of, of apolitical former military service. Um, that is just uh, like it, it is it is a, a laughable coda to to a pretty dark and depressing, you know, account of who the president is. Well, former White House chiefs of staff may be unwilling to go on the record criticizing the president and his aides, but currently serving senior Homeland Security officials, at least one in particular, have no such hesitations. Uh, we referenced the the breaking news that was occurring before uh, I was in place to go on the podcast. Um, Brian Murphy, who uh, listeners may remember, uh, was until recently the acting undersecretary for intelligence and analysis at the Homeland Security Department and was removed from that post after his office compiled intelligence reports. On, on me. By- <laughs> You're stepping on my punchline, man. I'm going to set you up. Uh, about tweets by Ben and a New York Times Reporter, uh, Brian Murphy has now filed a whistleblower complaint with the Homeland Security Department's Inspector General, uh, alleging a number of pretty astonishing uh, claims, insofar as they are on the record, I suppose. Uh, probably the most interesting of notable of which is that uh, senior administration officials, including acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf, Murphy says, acting at the direction of the National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, told him to have his office stop disseminating reports about Russian interference in the 2020 election because it could paint the president in an unflattering light and wanted him to focus his efforts on China and Iran. And we've talked on the podcast before about how a lot of experts and Democratic lawmakers feel that the administration is trying to lump China, Russia, and Iran into the sort of same bucket of interference activities when, in fact, Russia is the only one that is actively trying to help Trump by attacking Joe Biden, and that what China and Iran are doing is kind of qualitatively and quantitatively different. Murphy apparently shares that assessment as well, and this is in his complaint. Uh, He also talks about pressure on him to change language around Antifa and anarchist types to make it more in line with the White House's rhetoric, to kind of juke the stats or inflate the stats on the number of quote-unquote known suspected terrorists trying to cross the border with Mexico to provide political ammunition and rhetoric and talking points for the president to help build support for building a border wall. So, Ben, I'm going to kick this over to you first, since you have been the subject of Mr. Murphy's office's interest in the past, and just talk about you know the significance of what he's alleging. And and you know, and to be clear, we're talking about someone you know who was just removed from his job for activities that the secretary of the department is on record saying were unacceptable. Yeah. 
Uh, so let's start with the fact that Brian Murphy, unlike certain other people who have emerged as whistleblowers, is not a good actor here. Brian Murphy, at a minimum, was the acting head of INA at a time that the intelligence unit engaged in a fair bit of hyper-aggressive activity. Obviously, as the subject of one piece of that activity, or I should say two pieces of activity, I have a bit of a bone to pick with the way he conducted business in that office. But look, the reason I was the subject of those intelligence reports was that I and Lawfare were reporting on other aggressive activity that they were involved in. And so this was a matter of concern to me even before it came to be directed at me. And I I do think Brian Murphy on his own has a lot to answer for. And let us remember that the circumstances of his removal involved you, Shane Harris, reporting on his activity vis-a-vis or his office's activity vis-a-vis me and Mike Baker of the New York Times. He was removed within 24 hours of that report in the context of the acting Homeland Security Secretary having to concede that that activity was entirely improper. And so the first thing I want to say is that Brian Murphy is not somebody, you know, this is not an Alex Vindman character or a Fiona Hill. This is not somebody whose hands are clean. Uh, The second thing is that it is possible that in trying to preempt action against himself and in trying to paint himself in the most uh, favorable light, that uh, Mr. Murphy has in fact revealed uh, egregious wrongdoing. And that is actually, I I think, not merely possible, but somewhat likely, to be honest. If you look at the material from DHS that I disclosed last week, Uh, involving the threats to Homeland Security reports, uh, there is some material in there that is consistent with the allegations that uh, Mr. Murphy is making, which is to say that DHS at the staff level seems to be taking the position that Russia is differently situated from other actors in terms of interventions in elections and you know, he contends that they are under pressure not to do that. He is correctly describing their institutional position. He is also describing uh, their position vis-a-vis white supremacist violence as distinct from sort of Antifa and other stuff, which is also reflected in that material. And so I think it is perfectly possible that he is sort of telling the truth about the misconduct of others by way of protecting himself from his own misconduct. Yeah, so I, you know, look, I I think that's really important context that Ben just laid out, right? There's always sort of a temptation, um, you know, whenever uh, a former Trump administration official sort of offers a narrative that is convenient um, for his opponents to want to sort of believe it wholesale, you know, because it's politically convenient. Um, I think we've seen that uh, sort of with Michael Cohen, uh, with with a number of other figures. And that's um, that this is not somebody who, based on their 
their record of prior conduct and their public record of their prior conduct um, is sort of whose word should be taken at face value. That said, even if Murphy does have a mixed motive and the the real attempt here is just to um, invite his colleagues to join him underneath the bus, um, it doesn't mean that everything he's saying is not, uh, that, that there aren't elements of what he's saying that is true um, and really, really serious and, and merit um, aggressive investigation. There is one line in this that I would really invite other people to start flipping the F out about. And that's that uh, one of sort of the uh, episodes that Murphy describes is that in mid-May 2020, uh, Acting Secretary of Homeland Security Chad Wolf instructed Mr. Murphy, and I'm reading now, to cease providing intelligence assessments on the threat of Russian interference in the United States and instead start reporting on interference activities by China and Iran. This is more evidence of a pattern of conduct that is across the Trump administration that I think is really, really, really alarming and deserves a lot more uh, scrutiny and attention right now. And so uh, Murphy is saying that uh, that Chad Wolf told him that these instructions specifically came from National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien. That allegation alone really casts the uh, statement of NCSC Director Bill Evanina that we discussed on this podcast in a totally different light. So um, whenever we talked about that original statement that NCSC had put out, and um, we talked about, you know, look, this is an uh, this is an example of the subtle politicization, right? So they said that that Russia was interfering, but also also China had a preference, even though China wasn't really doing anything, and it sure did look like the distortion of man- or manipulation of intelligence in order to have, uh, you know, in order to, to to be politically convenient to the president of the United States. Um, but that was sort of taken with a, um, uh, this isn't in bad faith. It's just what happens whenever you start to allow political concerns to come into the presentation of intelligence information. Um, this looks a lot more like, no, the National Security Advisor um, was overtly giving this direction um, to individuals in the administration, and they were complying. Um, so now we've seen uh, this allegation from Brian Murphy. Uh, we've seen the Evanina statement sort of inflating uh, inflating the, th- the risk of China. We saw Attorney General Bill Barr went on CNN last week um, and gave an interview in which uh, he sort of took the Evanina statement and built on it and said that China was the most serious uh, election security threat. That's really, really concerning. That is a an administration working to, one, ignore a serious national security threat in the form of Russian election interference, two, actively to mislead and lie to the American public about the existence of uh, of an election security threat that is in no way substantiated by the evidence, at least not the evidence that they've offered on the public record, and to do so because it is part of a narrative that they have concocted that China, because it might prefer Donald Trump as sort of a chaos agent, not be reelected, therefore prefers Biden and therefore uh, Biden. Biden should pay a political cost, right, or, or that voters should uh, uh, should engage in this sort of false equivalence between, uh, well, you know, Russia prefers Trump and China prefers Biden, and it all sort of cancels out in the wash. Um, that is really, really.
really alarming stuff. And, and I think it's a it, we've reached a point in which kind of the lights are blinking red on this. The, the American public, the United States Congress is being lied to about, you know, sort of basic intelligence. Um, and, and for some reason, you know, we, we talked about sort of the, the Atlantic story. I guess I'm not understanding why this uh, really, really alarming thread doesn't seem to be really breaking through. Margaret, I, I might just kind of flip this back to you again with the, with the POV from Congress question. I mean, one thing that strikes me is that, you know, the, the, this this document was, whistleblower complaint was published also today by the House Intelligence Committee, and they want to talk to Brian Murphy about his allegations. And of course, that is the same committee that is investigating activity that occurred under Brian Murphy's direction, which is sort of an interesting kind of, you know, turn of events, I guess. He's both, you know, the source and the subject of an investigation. But, you know, to Susan's point, is there is there is is there a break? I can't, you have to answer for Congress, Margaret. Is there a breaking point for them? And does it, in a sense, make it easier when you know a senior official who's in a fairly well placed position to know these things is coming out and willing to give this kind of testimony for the record i mean does it make it any easier for congress to demand of the dni you know fuller more detailed public briefings uh which you know he's kind of backtracked and said he'll give them to uh, uh evanina will give them to members on the committees privately but you know that's nothing close to the kind of public declarations they want to see i think this probably does help that along a little bit i but but i i'm not sure and we're all going to be saved here by this thing. Um, just, I would note that Adam Schiff, who's the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, is calling um, Murphy to testify on the record on September 21st. Um, if that date sticks, that will be sort of a date to to look toward. A lot of parts of this complaint that he submitted both to the Inspector General uh, and also to Congress, uh, to the committee today, um, are classified. And so it's, it would seem that there's a lot of stuff, a lot of things that that Murphy claims to have uh, said to his superiors uh, about what was going on that's classified. So I do wonder if there will be any more um, sort of information coming out about, about all of the, the items in the complaint that are, that are classified. Who knows? In terms of how this affects the, the congressional dynamic on briefings, I, I don't know. I don't know that it does. Um, and just to situate us, um, yes, you're right. Evanina said he would sort of do some sort of, of of briefing. Although that, you know, this this idea that the DNI is sort of walking back their earlier, you know, giving Congress the the Heisman and not not coming up to brief the the idea that that's really being turned around. I'm I'm not convinced um, about that. Marco Rubio, who's the acting head of the Senate Intelligence Committee, did come out and say, oh, you know, to, to the press, like, don't worry. Now, you know, Ratcliffe has assured me personally that they're going to come up and brief on election security issues. Uh, but interestingly, like Ratcliffe's office didn't confirm that. They didn't sort of comment on that. Um, and also, where does that leave the House? I, I don't know how the House is going to be treated uh, now with respect to uh, these election security briefings. So I, I think there's still a lot of question marks and uncertainty about what kind of information Congress is going to get. And now, as as Susan points out, we're now seeing that 
if if these allegations in this complaint are true, there's uh, the the seeds of sort of um, misinformation are actually being seeded in the agency with with higher ups trying to influence these intelligence products even before uh, they become products that can get to Congress. Remember what Ratcliffe said was, we're just going to give you written products. And now what we understand is there's a chance, if this complaint is true, that those written products are being politicized. Um, and just stepping back a little bit on the congressional angle, I mean, what, what today's events really, really kind of say to me, um, looking over the broad landscape, is how thoroughly it seems President Trump and the administration really are politicizing all of you know all of the the sort of functions of government that they can that he can in support of his reelection bid so suppressing this information from the intelligence community that Russia's likely to denigrate the health of Joe Biden all of the stuff that's sort of in this today's reporting about you know emphasizing that the you know there are these anarchist groups and antifa while downplaying the white supremacy uh, aspects of of the intelligence reporting uh, and this isn't not just happening with the intelligence community it's happening with lots of agencies so you look at the state department you know the state department didn't provide no agency provided a single document in support of the impeachment investigation and yet the State Department has provided something like over 16,000 documents to Senate Republicans, um, Senators Johnson and Grassley, on Biden and Burisma. And so what we're seeing really is is just a almost total, it's seeming today, just steering the instruments of government toward misinformation and in support of of the uh, political uh, re-election of Donald Trump and away from what we think of as nonpartisan governance. Well, Margaret, you bring up the seemingly ancient legend of impeachment, which that was that was this year, wasn't it? That did happen. This <laughs> oh my year. God. <laughs> think about that. Kid. The trial did. The, the, the trial. The, right. the other one, the the impeachment though was was an end of last year. Yeah, but actually, it was the the whistleblower complaint was transmitted on September some. I think it was 13th. September 9th. It was twenty nineteen. Well, that's true. So. Yeah, well, they was it was yeah, that's right. And it was September thirteenth that it was uh, uh, that notice of it first surfaced through a press release. Uh, yeah. So I would just note that this is the one year anniversary, and here we have another <laughs> another community whistleblower Happy complaint. Happy birthday <laughs> to you. Uh, well, let's do a little flashback here. Don McGahn, folks remember him, the former White House counsel who he wasn't he in, he's in a rock band, right? Or doesn't he like play guitar in a band? He plays guitar in a band. Yeah, right. You're singing just like, maybe I was just picturing you and Don McGahn, like singing Happy Birthday, Ben. I think we're going to do that, actually, when, when this is all over. Don McGahn and I are going to do some playing together. I might believe that's going to happen before I ever see Don McGahn testify before Congress, um, which is where we've seen some more uh, commotion uh, in the past few days on this ongoing legal battle to, to force Don McGahn to comply with a subpoena to appear before a congressional committee. Margaret, there's been some movement on this. Why don't you just kind of quickly bring us up to speed and remind listeners kind of where we last left off in this saga, and then we'll we'll dig into uh, the implications of of what's happening. Yeah, you know, you say some movement, and that that's doing a lot of work there because um, it does <laughs> feel like, in a lot of ways, uh, this issue 
it's kind of like a lot of running in place almost because listeners will remember, you know, the McGann testimony related back to uh, the Mueller report and McGann's key role in the sort of second part of the Mueller report related to obstruction of justice. Congress wanted to call him up and talk to him about that, maybe try to get some more details. The president basically said no, claimed something called absolute immunity, which is not something that has prevailed in court before uh, and is not expected to uh, on the merits. All the machinations in court, when the committee went to court and said, you know, please compel uh, Mr. McGahn to testify, all the machinations are kind of about, they're about very legally issues um, rather than the sort of merits of whether Don McGahn has to show up on Capitol Hill. And so this most recent decision by uh, a panel of the D.C. Circuit essentially said, the okay on bank, you know, you you sent this case back to us saying yes, Article Three courts do have the ability. People, you know, the committees do have standing to try to enforce a subpoena in court. Um, but this this three judge panel on a two one decision essentially said, okay on bank panel, we 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 see you've remanded this to us, but we're still going to say no because there's no cause of action here. And what that means is that these two judges on this three panel, on this panel, were essentially saying because Congress and the president, or the, because there's no law that specifically permits the House of Representatives to bring such an action in court, there's no cause of action. And so the court can't decide the issue. And so that's kind of how it ended at this particular moment. I I do think that this will be appealed yet again. And I I do think that if if the en banc panel does hear it, that it will be overturned. um, And then we'll be kind of back to a potential decision on the merits, maybe. But really... I think that it's it's highly probable that the clock will run on this. There won't be a decision. It may very well become moot um, if there's a new Congress and, that doesn't necessarily want to pursue this or a new president, et cetera. So it's, it's really quite frustrating, uh, I'd say, for people who follow Congress and are trying to sort out, you know, is our future Congresses going to be able to subpoena witnesses uh, from the executive branch or former officials. That's really the, the the question. Are these people going to have to appear before Congress or not? And it's not having an, a, an answer to that and not having a, a real prospect of getting one is, it, it's a lot of running in place. And you know, if you'll just bear with me, I, I was kind of thinking of an extended, a little bit of an extended analogy about how to explain this to people. And inspired by, in August of 2018, Michael Gerson, who you all know is a conservative commentator. This was before the 2018 midterms. He sort of was chiding the Republican Congress for not really being a check on Trump up until that time. And he he said this quote, he said, the separation of powers does not work automatically like a washing machine. Um, and that is true. Uh, and that really resonated at the moment. As you know, what happened is that Democrats came into the House with huge, huge numbers in terms of voting. And there was this really a lot of optimism that, you know, surely now uh, at least the House of Representatives will serve as a check on this president. But, you know, it turns out that even if that, you know, the House of Representatives 
pours detergent in the washing machine, turns it on, the president apparently can come and just kick it over. And the courts don't seem to be able at this point to do anything more except kind of stand by and ponder whether they can write the machine, the washing machine. And so it's it's quite frustrating for those of us who who follow Congress and want there to be more order and more clarity about what powers Congress does and doesn't have. And I just don't think we're, we're going to get it. Ben. So in the spirit of injecting disharmony into the rational security community, I'm going to take a radically more optimistic view of this than Margaret from the Please, point of view of make me feel better, power. Ben. So here is my Margaret should chill out and, <laughs> and learn to love the combat between the branches. It's a, like a strange love thing. I, look, I actually think this is actually working out kind of well. And here's how I think it could play out and why I think it could alleviate some of Margaret's concerns. Yes, this is going to have to go en banc at the D.C. Circuit again, assuming the en banc court does not side with the panel again. Margaret is certainly correct that that could suck up a fair bit of time and the subpoena could lapse. But the House is going to be in Democratic hands after January uh, to a uh, near certainty, whatever happens with the Senate and the White House. If the White House changes hands, I think a President Biden is most unlikely to assert as aggressively on McGahn's behalf uh, the privileges and immunities that this White House is asserting. And so McGahn will have to, at that point, fold like a cheap suit. And the consequence will be that, yes, it will be late, but I think the principle will be established through the course of this litigation that you don't just get to do what the president and Don McGahn did. And uh, the result will be that there will be some case law the next time around that says, hey, under McGahn, when Congress subpoenas you, you've got to show up. And I think that will be a stronger position than Congress was in this time around, just having that case law on the books. Now, will it be a perfectly strong position? No. And the reason is that if Biden doesn't litigate the executive privilege claims, those will still be available to litigate. So you're still going to have issues that a, a future president could assert. Some of them may be substantial, but I do think we're likely to get through get through this litigation, establish the principle that Congress gets to issue subpoenas for investigative matters like this, that you don't simply get to stick your middle finger up at them, and that these blanket claims like absolute immunity, uh, which by the way, can kind of be applied to documents as well as people. I mean, when the State Department says we're not turning over a shred of paper, that is not the same claim as Don McGahn saying I don't have to show up, but it's not an unrelated claim. And I think Congress is likely to emerge from this, particularly if we assume that the House does not flip, uh, somewhat strengthened, albeit too belatedly to make a difference in this case. 
Look, I I hope Ben is right. Right, I I um I like the rosy, optimistic view. I'm not sure I can share that optimism, and that's because it's not that hard to assert a slightly different, uh, novel legal theory in the future. Um, and what uh, the Trump administration has really demonstrated and shown proof of concept for is not the pr- the merit of particular legal claims that they might be. Uh, asserting regarding immunity or, or this or that, um, but just that you can say no, spin up some kind of legal claim, and let then let sort of the glacial process of the courts play out, um, and not pay a real political price for that. And so, yeah, if you can get them to litigate for two years, great. If you can get them to litigate for three months, that's fine too. Um, at the end of the day, though, you're not in any worse position um, than you were the first day the subpoena came to you. And and on most sets of facts, you're actually in a much better position, especially if you're thinking about um, Congress sort of attempting to uh, flex exit subpoena power in order to uh, investigate kind of ongoing scandals. And you've demonstrated that, one, you can get away with that in the public, right, sort of using law, uh, you know, in in order to to delay, um, using the courts as a vehicle to delay and being brazen about doing so, um, that that all works. And you've shown um, that Congress isn't really able to get its act together um, to really play hardball in using the other tools available. Available to it. Um, and there's lots of reasons why that might be the case, right? So we're talking about appropriations, authorizations, nom- uh, advice and consent, right? There's lots of things going on. Yes, having divided chambers makes it more complicated. Um, but those reasons kind of don't matter because all that matters is that it, it actually can't get its act together to do that. And so I, I think we're in this moment in which actually uh, this is a real blow to Congress. And, and Congress um, is emerging from the Trump era, if in Indeed, it does if we emerge from the Trump era at all um, in a weaker position, 80 percent of which uh, was by its own doing uh, and the doing especially of uh, of congressional Republicans and maybe 20 percent with a 20 percent assist from the courts. I think the real question is if Trump is voted out of office and we have a President Biden in January, um, what is the position of the Biden White House counsel? What is the position of the Biden Department of justice. Are they going to do what lots of presidents do, right? So like, you know, where where you stand, where you sit is where you stand um, and say, well, you know, we didn't, you know, Trump was obviously making these assertions for frivolous reasons, but, um, you know, there are really good and important reasons for executive privilege and and, uh, and use this because, of course, it will be an important uh, tool, an important flex of power, especially if they end up in a situation uh, in which they have Republican control of at least one chamber, or if instead this is an area in which a new administration decides to voluntarily self-constrain, even in ways plainly contrary to its political interests and to its immediate institutional interests, in order to be part of this collaborative rebuilding project. Um, and, and that's the area in which I think that the biggest question mark lies right now. Um, but I'm, I, I liked Ben's rosy account. I, I, I just just don't know that I that I, I really believe it deep down. I I think we're in we're in a bad place, and the, and the legislature is in a bad place, and separation of powers, uh, sort of as a as a basic principle, is is in a bad way. Yeah, let me just try to rehabilitate my rosiness for just a second. <laughs> I actually think that some of what Susan said just now 
may not prove to be correct. And so it's obviously speculative, but, you know, when the Trump administration asserted these grandiose privilege claims and immunity claims, they did not pull them out of thin air. These were claims that administrations down through the years have made in both parties and just have not asserted especially aggressively. And here, Trump asserted all of them at once with maximum aggressiveness and no no negotiation associated with them. And so if the result of this is that they get uh, batted back, and what we learn is that this claim of absolute immunity, in fact, doesn't exist, I think that has much more power than Susan's description of it gives you can't simply make these claims up out of whole cloth. They have to be rooted in something. And these claims that the Trump administration made were rooted in something. And what I think we're going to learn from these litigations is that they were rooted in something, but not very much, and they're going to disappear. And that would be a very healthy thing from a congressional standpoint. All right. Speaking of healthy things, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I have an object. Ben is an object. Margaret, do you have an object this week? I do. You do? Okay. Um, well, you get to go first because you're the guest. Yay. Thank you. I'm so happy, by the way, to be on Rational Security. I don't think I've been on since pandemic hit. So this Wait, is Wait, is that highlight. possible? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, everybody's been home, so everybody's been able to do it. So, wow. I'm <laughs> But so I'm so happy to be here. Um, my good. object lesson is um, teacher parades. Oh. Do you guys know what teacher parades are? I do I not. Yes. Well, um, we had one today. Um, this is when, obviously, DC is in distance learning mode. And uh, the two teachers my, at my son's school who are, are teaching the, the his grade, they went around to each of the homes of the students um, in the grade and handed some materials to the students and talked with them and kind of had a, an in-person interaction with masks, of course. But I just highlight it because, you know, these teachers, they're just wonderful people. And they, you know, the idea of hopping in their in their car, the two of them together and and driving around to each of the, the, the homes of their students, it's just like a really heartwarming thing. I think they're really trying to create a connection with these kids that you don't get through distance learning. So teacher parades, they're they're all the rage and they are a good thing. I love that. I love the way this is the one bright spot of all this has been the way the people have just become innovative and improvised, improvised uh, new ways of reaching out to each other. So that's, that's awesome. Ben, why don't you go next? So I know that many listeners of, of Rational Security are thinking about what the best way to say something obscene and inappropriate to the president is. And you know, I don't usually participate in this, but today I have a suggestion. If you really want to make a statement to Donald Trump, one that he will hear, buy Pete Strzok's new book. It is now out and it reached uh, number 17 on Amazon the other day. And I think that if 25,000 listeners of Rational Security all ordered a copy, that would drive Donald Trump a little bit batty 
to have Pete's book be a, a real bestseller. And I think uh, it's a really interesting book. It's a really challenging look at the counterintelligence issues that we faced as a country as a result of the Trump presidency. But I also think just in the space of living rent-free in Donald Trump's head and really upsetting him, it would be really good if one of the chief coup plotters uh, sold a lot of books. So check out Pete Strzok's book, buy a copy, listen to it on Audible. Pete reads it himself. Uh, And we will be uh, publishing on the Lawfare podcast a long conversation that I had with him on the release of the book earlier today uh, through Georgetown University. So check that out too. But piss off Trump. Buy a copy of Pete Strzok's book. (laughs) It would probably also make Pete happy if you bought a copy of his book. Secondary benefit. (laughs) Uh, All right, I'll do my object lesson. Uh, Listeners know I love to recommend shows for you and movies to watch, particularly now that you're more frequently at home. I'm going to recommend one uh, that I am, it is not new, it is new to me, that I have been absolutely floored by and addicted to. And this falls into the category of shows about intelligence and espionage and listeners will know most shows generally get it wrong and i don't care about that really as long as the show is interesting but i have found a show that is both hugely interesting and that as far as i can tell and from talking to professionals in the field gets this world very right um do you guys know this french show the bureau I've heard great things about it. Hmm, no. It is outstanding. Uh, I, I can't say enough good things about this show. Uh, I don't have is enough Is it in time. French, though, Shane? It is there is like in subtitles? French. There are subtitles, mm. yes. It's in French. But like you kind of like, you know, you feel yourself even learning French a little bit as you go. Like, you know, I learned how to say things like, I'll have the same, please. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the show follows, I guess, what you'd really call like a knock unit. I mean, within the French DGSE, uh, not people who are under non-official cover. So people who are living a legend, as they call it, or a cover out in the field. And there's one protagonist who's kind of at the center of it. And it's all the people who work around him. Uh, and, it's a, and it's kind of an, a plot line that extends through multiple seasons. It was recommended to me by a former uh, senior operations person at the CIA who said, look, if you really want to know like what the show that gets closest to what it's like to be in our world, it's actually this French show. Um, so you can get it. It's a little hard to find. I think you can download it on iTunes. You can get it like through the Sundance app or something. Uh, but uh, the Bureau, not to be confused with what we think of when we mean the Bureau, which is Pete Strzok's Bureau. This is this is La Bureau. <laughs> I'm even sounding Parisian. It'll make it. It's great. Go check it out. Uh, And go now because the podcast is over. That's it. We're a wrap, you guys, on a very, very busy news day and news week. The podcast, of course, Rational Security is brought to you by Lawfare. You can find uh, our show page at lawfareblog.com. Susan, what's your favorite thing to buy at the Lawfare store to piss off the president? Um, Baby gross. Baby gross. It's a classic. No one likes baby crows. 
<laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and a review. That really helps us out. Uh, our audio engineer this week is Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patio Howell. Music this week by Brian Murphy with his rendition of Swish Swish by Katy Perry. <laughs> See where I went with that? To quote Katy Perry, karma's not a liar. She keeps receipts. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, the kids like that one. And Sophia Yan likes it too. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittis, Susan Hennessy, and our friend Margaret Taylor, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week of WOW. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.